0: and a little bit to examine chapter one. Um, those of you who picked it up last week, and so I'm gonna give you another opportunity to, if you want anything addressed, or any questions answered, I can do that at the front end of our time together. I'd rather do it at the front than at the back side of it, of our study tonight. Any comments or questions, anything discussion we want to have over the attributes of God and their relationship to the definition of God and what I mean by the humility of God? Because those are essentially the concepts presented in chapter one. Chapter one is the one we gave you last week. It starts off with the great Tetherball revelation. I have not named them because I'm not confident uh, that these are in the order that I'm going to be putting them in. I'm still working on that a little bit. Um, I'm not sure if I want to put the next one we're going to study or the one after that. Probably the, I'm, I'm still working on two and three, if they're going to be two and three or three and two. So That's why I haven't put chapter numbers on them. So. Anything that you felt that I needed to cover more thoroughly, or this is your chance to pick the brain of the author. That's always a fun thing. Um, We occasionally had that opportunity in seminary and in college where they would bring in these guys and just to be able to, what do you mean by this, and can you elaborate? Because they have enormous amounts of content that they didn't write down. Okay. I must be an exceptional writer. Brenda's looking. Right. Yeah, I gave you three examples. The popular one, in terms of what people are more exposed to outside of theological circles, is God is love. God is love, 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 love. And that's the only defining quality... And therefore, he has to be loving above all else. And then we get to define what love is. Isn't that interesting? We don't let God define love, but we say he is love. Um, And uh, the old world, old school word for love was benevolent. Um, That God is benevolent. God is love. And that incorporates all of his other attributes of goodness, graciousness, things like that. Um, But in popular circles, God is love is very, high up there, right, you encounter people, God is love all the time, right? How could a loving God do this? How could a loving God let this happen? And in their mind, that's all they think of in terms of God. So in the popular circles, in in outside theological circles, that's very prevalent. Within theological circles, we really come down to about three attributes of God that we elevate to that level. One of them is sovereignty. I gave that example, and that's Calvinism. But a lot of Calvinists will also, and I've encountered this extensively, um, that God is holy. That this is the defining attribute of God. He is holy above everything else. And therefore, there's not, and this relates to. There's nothing you can do to please him or appease him. He is holy, and we never measure up, and there's nothing we could ever do. And it brings, in that corn a lot of Calvinists will use that as the premier one. And it's not that they deny the other attributes. They're saying this is the defining attribute of God. Everything else must um, be, is driven by or is subject to, in, and God can't do anything that's not holy. Okay? So once we have a defining attribute like holiness, now anything that we perceive as unholy can't be God. Okay? Well, I have a problem, which we're going to talk about probably next week with Jesus. What's the problem? What happened to Jesus on the cross? He became sin. How can a holy, holy, holy God become sin on any level? If holiness is the defining attribute of God, then when Jesus became sin, he ceased to be God. Um, and, And not just for the few hours on the cross, but Permanently, because he violated this supreme attribute. You'll see that attribute uh, carried, and in fact, that was really why he left our church, was because he did, he, his view was that God was holy above everything else, and that somehow in our teaching of the church, that we were violating his holiness, um, or, or diminishing it, we'll put it like that. Um, especially with regard to the question we're going to talk about in this chapter tonight. Right, yes, we're going to have a lot of that carried through the whole thing, and that's why I said, whenever you introduce an attribute of God, and that's something that uh, we discuss a lot in theological circles, is to realize that all the attributes of God um, define each other um, so they are all adverbs adjectives nouns verbs simultaneously so they all describe so God is lovingly holy but he is also holy in his love and so they, they are mutual dependency or in, interrelated to one another you can't just take one attribute of God run with it and disregard the rest of who God is And so throughout this thing, we're going to be dealing with how does humility engage with holiness? How does humility engage with his eternality? How does humility engage with his omnipresence? That is the whole focus of the book is I have to take this attribute and do all the bases with all the other attributes and say not that this is supreme above them, but this is how it resolves some of these attributes that other people lift to um, the defining God by. And the dilemma that I talk about is that once you elevate one attribute that nothing God does can ever in any way, um, even in appearance, violate that, then that attribute rules God, okay? And so, and that's how we approach God. If we define God by one of his attributes above every other one, now that attribute becomes really our God, not the God who possesses it, but that, that attribute now controls or rules God because now God can't do anything except for what is holy, what is sovereignty. He can't ever lend it out. He can't ever diminish it he can't ever control it because it controls him. And <clears throat> this is, a, this is an ex, um, not just in modern time, but if you go through way back Reformation period, these were the hotly discussed topics of the attributes of God. And again, outside of some very rare occasions we don't really have a model to help us avoid that. Because if the Bible says God is holy, then God is holy. There's no exception to the rule, right? Or is there? Does God possess holiness? Or is God hamstrung? Or uh, is he, is he um, handcuffed by holiness? In other words, can he ever do something that, at least from our appearance is an unholy thing. How can God become sin? Okay, and this is, if you want to know a context for that one particularly, the holiness, that's the battle between Muslims and Christians. That's why Muslims justify killing Christians, is because we violate the holiness of God by making him co-mingle with man in Jesus Christ. Because you believe that God slept with Mary, which of course we don't, that God mingled with the seed of men or with the with mankind, you are diminishing God's holiness. And for that reason, we're going to kill you as heretics. Okay? That that's their rationale theologically of why they can attack Christians when the the Quran states that you're not to attack anyone who is religious is of a book. so it's okay to deal with Hindus and Buddhists they don't have a book um, but Christianity and Judaism do. We have a text and, but what's the rationale? And so the Catholic Church when they confronted the Muslims said why is the problem and why can't we coexist um, during the Holy Wars? Their statement was because you violate this attribute of God. And so then they had introduced a bunch of doctrine and the Catholic Church introduced that doctrine to try to uh, satiate, satisfy the Muslims. And that doctrine is now Mary has to be more than human, right? So now she has to have a, a divine origin herself so that we have this unique individual to create another unique individual to protect God's holiness from man's corruptness. Okay, and so that's where the Catholic doctrine of of Mariology was really birthed, was in this concept, because in a a Muslim's mind, God is holy. Um, The Muslim Allah isn't loving, he's merciful, and but they, what they mean by merciful is different than what you think of as merciful. Okay, um, He's merciful by letting you keep living um, and not just destroying you all because God is holy, holy, holy to them as well. But they have elevated that. And so a lot of um, Christian theologians follow that and we're gonna see that played out in our uh, doctrine of Jesus Christ so they are there. Um, and and we're, gonna, uh, we're gonna address some that you hold very precious to you. Um, for example, some will say, well, God, in their definition of God, they say he's eternal. Okay, He's eternal. What does that mean? No beginning and no end. Um, but when you press them further, well, can God confine himself in time? And that's, well, no. We have to say something different. And the way we state that is he is out time, as he's outside of time. He is trans time. So he just, and so, uh, you know, uh, you have all these different doctrines out there um, because we cannot violate eternality because it's part of our definition of God. Whereas, In the chapter that I give my definition is the self-existent personal being. Okay, and now any attribute um, uh, can be applied to that, and so um, we're trying to not use any one attribute to define God. Even God is a spirit. Is he now? Jesus says God is a spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Who is talking? Jesus, who is a man. <laughs> how, does this, how does God as a spirit work with God in the flesh? Okay? And so I don't even use spirit to, dis- to define God. He's a person. But he doesn't have any orig- origination And rather than saying he's eternal, which is what usually people want to communicate by that word, um, but when it follows through, it becomes a time. Then I I use the pre-existent or self-existent one. That is, he was never created. He is always self-existent by who he is, and he's a person. And personality is is distinguishes himself from a force or a power. which is very common in um, when we get to Holy Spirit, that He's just a force. He's the He's he, and He'll actually use the word the force, um, very Star Wars ish. But He's just a power. He's not a person. The person of the Holy Spirit is usually what's under attack. That help. So there are there's a lot of theological baggage to this blank, above all else, gods. There's a lot of them out there. Allah is one of them. But so is, there's another one in Judaism, right? What is Judaism? The Lord is one. Above all else, the Lord is one. And so therefore, how do they approach you when you say Jesus is God? Well, they approach you the same way they approach Jesus when he says, if you see me, you've seen the Father. No, the Lord is one, But why do we have a plural in Genesis? Let us make man in our image. Why is it a plural? Um, and so, you know, they elevate that declaration, the Lord, he is one, to, def- to the level of de- definition rather than description. Okay? So I can des- you can describe me in a lot of different ways, but none of that necessarily defines me of who I am. Okay, and we're really good at this, right? Okay, so if I ask you, um, who is Valerie Westling, and you start describing her, well, she's a twenty-something blonde girl. You know, what well, you've just all you've done is described her to me. I've asked you who is she. Okay, and we are gonna say what color of skin she has, color of eyes, how tall she is, what she does for a living. Um, she's single, you have all these descriptions that you can give me of this person, um, but you haven't defined her, you've just described her. And I fear we do that too much with God. You know, who is God, was the question. And we use attributes to define him instead of describe him, and then we raise those attributes to a level that um, gets us into theological extremism, and then we condemn everyone is heretics, who don't agree with us. That extreme view, defining God by a single attribute. Or even a set of attributes. You know, these three attributes can never be broken, or these four. Okay. Absolutely, because we, we are not allowed to be critical thinkers. Um, When I was young, um, what was the great, let's see, John Denver went to the Rocky Mountains to find himself, okay, um, what was the great um, challenge? Well, I want to know who am I? Who am I? And it was coupled with a second question that every young person had to come to grips with, and it defined really your direction of your life you wanted to find out who I am and why am I here. Okay, every young person was confronted with these two things. Who are you, why are you here? And young people today, that's the farthest thing, they've never been confronted with those questions at all. And if they have at any length, it's perverted by these bizarre things of, you know, I'm not a boy and things like that. It's just freakish. Because we have abandoned that process, that really is society's job to help introduce truth into someone's life so that they can ask and find answers to those questions. And they are still worth asking, who are you? I'm a butcher. Well, no, you just describe what you do, but who are you? I'm a brother, sister, wife, husband, you know, Uh, That's a relationship, but who are you? And they don't think about that. Um, But those are the important questions that used to be encountered and worked through by lots of young adults. And because while they're under their parents' authority, you know then when they became young adults, now they're going to go out in the world and discover who am I and why am I here now that I'm my own person and not under the authority of a parent. And that's why college um, and that young adult age, and so they explore weird things to try to answer those questions. They explored drugs. They explored, um, that was the whole basis of the hippie movement of, of the 60s, um, who am I? Why am I here? And they're exploring all these things, and we really have uh, short-circuited that process through entertainment and through the dulling of their intellect so they don't even think of those things unless they're perverted by this attention-getting. And that's all it is, really, attention-getting. You know, I'm non-binary. Well, <laughs> no such thing exists. It doesn't exist. Okay. So we've entered them into, and it shouldn't surprise you that they go there, right? Because their whole lives is what? Fantasy. Okay. I mean, they're, they're fantasizing from the very, very early age because their reality is only TV and the internet. And it should be no surprise that they think they can dream themselves into something that doesn't, isn't even real. And that's all they got. And it's really sad. Okay? Good stuff. Let's get into tonight's work a little bit. Ephesians chapter 2. If you'll turn there. Verse 5 is where I'll pick up. I'd like to read more, but my voice is going to inhibit me a little bit. Let this mind be new which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God did not consider robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even death on the cross. This is a pretty direct statement, right, that support my hypothesis that God is humble. Because what does it say in the text? He humbled himself and became a servant. Right? I mean, it's right there in the text. That makes it real easy for us to say, well, Jesus was humbled himself um, and we have a dilemma. He humbled himself for our benefit, but the question comes in um, and it's we're going to deal with one question at a time. The latter question is going to be what did he humble what did and the word there is emptied himself. It's called the Kenosis passage. I wrote that there for you. Um, it's a Greek word. We make a lot of it. Every textbook, every theological work on Jesus Christ, of Christology, uh, every commentator on this passage will pull that Greek word out and go on and on about it for paragraphs. And it becomes the trigger word for our Christology. What does it mean, kenosis? Which, which literally just means to empty oneself. And we talked a little bit about this last week. So we're going to ask the question, what did he empty himself of, and exactly how much did he empty himself that he could become man? But even before we get to that, we have a question about can we now take this action of Jesus Christ, derive something about God from that, and then apply it to God the Father and God the Spirit. And this brings to to really dealing with the triunity of God. And I share in the chapter there that we need to address that a little bit. Uh, and it's going to come up again under Holy Spirit. We're not going to revisit it there just by saying go back to this chapter. So, is Jesus God? Affirm that, yes. You believe that? Okay. Is the Spirit, Holy Spirit God? Yes. Okay, so that's the triune con- con- conviction is that Father, Son, Spirit are the triune, and I prefer the word triune to trinity. Trinity just says threeness. Triunity says three and oneness. So the correct term we should have been using all along is do you believe in the triunity, not the trinity. Trinity just means three. It doesn't have one in the definition of of it. So the triune God, three and one, We don't violate the unity, and we don't violate the plurality. So, we have lots of illustrations for this. Um, The problem is those illustrations break down if we take them too far. What are some illustrations of the trite unity you've heard? An egg, because you have a shell, the white, and the yolk. Can you separate them? Easily. Are they of the same nature? Not at all. not at all. completely different natures between them. So we can't all it does is give you kind of a cursory idea. we call it an egg but it has three parts. We're not talking about a God that has three parts that sometimes he or one part of him is the father, one part of him is this one part of him is that and that they have very different natures. And um, that's called modalism, and we, we identify that as error, as heresy. They're you saying that God over, the Father over here, um, can have a set of attributes distinct from God the Son, distinct from God the Spirit. And that rather they have to be a oneness. They're, they're all deity, and therefore everything we say about deity has to apply to all three equally. Well, I can talk about a yoke without ever referencing a shell, and you would never associate the shell with the yoke, right? A yoke is yellow. The shell can be any number of colors. Uh, the yoke is gushy. The shell isn't gushy, is it? No. Um, the yoke becomes a living being. The shell never becomes a living being, Right? And the yolk is yummy. And the shell isn't. <laughs> Unless you're a chicken. They'll eat, their, they'll eat shells. Um, they need to be fed their own shells back to get the calcium. And so, but that couldn't be true of God. That's not a good picture. What other illustrations do we have? Water, because what? It can be a liquid, solid, and gas. Again, phases of really the same thing. And again, you can't be all three at once, can you? Can water be all three, one molecule of water, can it be all three at once? Obviously not. And that's another form of modalism, that God sometimes is this, sometimes is that, and sometimes is this, right? And that's um, error, okay? Any other examples? All right, we have three different titles for the same person. I'm a father. I'm a I'm a son, and I'm a husband. We'll hear that example. But I'm still just me. But we're not. But it's much more complex. Those just state relationships. They don't state what you are or define you. Those are just you have various relationships. But I'm also an employee or an employer. I'm also a friend. I'm also a pastor. I'm a. i am I mean. These are just relationships you're talking about. They don't define you. We're defining God as triune. There's really only one really good illustration on earth, and we don't even fully understand it. And it's not three to make one, it's two to make one. What am I referring to? Your marriage.
1: When God says
0: a man and his wife will be one flesh, that is an extraordinary illustration, and that's why Mary should be so heavily guarded by the church, because that is the best illustration we have of who God is. That, that my wife and I's relationship before God, we are one flesh, but her body obviously goes to work Well, I stay home and watch the grandkids, right? Every Monday. Well, you might say, well, you're separated by time and distance, not time. We're in the same time zone. By distance, okay? Um, She has her own thoughts. I have my own thoughts. She has her will. I have my own will. But we are before God, one flesh. And therefore, we talk about one another as the better half. Who's the better half? and that's really not even accurate cuz we're both whole people, right? And and this is the illustration God gives us of what it's like in and again, he's taken his he's tertiary, we're binary two people, but it's still the whole mystery that we are one flesh before God. And so I'm bound to her till she dies. And then I'm free from that physical oneness that I have with her and then I can remarry and then the amazing thing is that I'm one flesh with this wife Um, but if I violate that, that's a horrible thing, God hates that that's why divorce adultery, fornication are no-nos because we're violating one of the best pictures and so um, can jesus represent god to us and communicate to us something that we can then say if jesus has this attribute god it must be a god attribute and that's the question we'd have no problem in theological circles saying here's our definition of god and then applying it to jesus that direction we have no problem with and so god is eternal well jesus is eternal Okay, was Jesus here before creation? We have no problem with that, okay? Um, He was there in the Old Testament, he was there at creation, he'll be there forever. Um, And so, yes, Um, so these attributes of God, we apply to Jesus, and we say, well, Jesus is all-knowing, omniscient, yes, Um, but somehow he claimed not to know certain things when he was on earth, including when he would come back, right? Right? I don't know that, only the Father knows that. Are there things that my wife knows that I don't know? Yes, there are. There's information she knows that I don't know, but, are we, but the Bible doesn't say we're one mind, we're one flesh, even though we separate. But I still have a pretty good understanding of her patterns of thought and the direction of her life and the places where she's, and what she knows, and and I tap that every now and then, and similarly, she does that with me. But can we take this attribute of knowing and apply it to Jesus? Yes. The challenge is, can we take attributes of Jesus, that we see of Jesus, and apply it to God, the Father? Because that's what's described here. Jesus humbled himself, emptied himself, well, To do that, he had to humiliate himself. He had to do something to his deity to fit into humanity. And so how can, is Jesus omnipresent? Let me ask you that. (laughs) Is Jesus omnipresent? How did he become... How did he walk? I mean, he says, I have to go to the Father to send the Spirit, which kind of implies that the Father wasn't here, Jesus was here, and the Spirit wasn't here. The Spirit was there. I have to go to this place, send him to that. That's all spatial terms. We're going to talk about that in one of the chapters. And so the question is, is Jesus omnipresent? Is Jesus here with you right now? Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst What is that passage referring to? Does anybody know? What is the context of that passage? Church discipline. He's really talking about his authority. There were two or three believers are gathered together and they're saying this brother's in sin that he is there. His, His authority is in those two or three to exercise discipline on the offending person. That was an authority issue, not necessarily a presence issue, but we quote that out of context all the time and use it to say, well, God, is, Jesus is omnipresent. And we tell young people that they're going to ask Jesus into their heart, and that's kind of implying that Jesus is going to be present in their heart, um, but Jesus isn't a spirit, is he? Is Jesus taking residence in their heart? Really, we're asking, inviting the Holy Spirit in, but under the authority of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. We are submitting our heart, our will, to Jesus. And we're, at, we're, you know, we're not really asking him into our heart. We really should be saying we're giving our heart to Jesus. That would be much more accurate. I'm giving my will to Jesus Christ so that he has the authority of my life, and that will be exercised by Holy Spirit's residence. Holy Spirit is the resident in us, Jesus has gone to the Father, and he has not returned yet. So now I have a struggle. Is Jesus omnipresent? Well, no. How can that be? When did that happen? And we're going to have to struggle with that. And can we apply those same principles? If Jesus can confine himself to, to space, spatial confine, that he can become a man, can God confine himself to space? and not be everywhere at once. Whoa. Now, I already talked about that last week, right? And I asked you, did can God give you uh, privacy? Can God grant you privacy? That was the question last week, right? A little bit. We're going to discuss that. That's one of the things we're going to look at. And so the question here is about Jesus Christ. If we study Jesus Christ, can I then take what I learn about Jesus and apply it to the Father and the Spirit? Yes and no. Why? Because they're three in one. And so the, the rule of thumb is do not confuse Father, Son, and Spirit and do not divide God into three parts. That's the rule that has come out of a lot of canonical meetings of, of men throughout church history to try to deal with what is heresy and what is not is do not confuse the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and do not. What's the other one? do not confuse the three, and do not uh, divide the one. And that is a lot of work. So did God the Father die on the cross? No, He was there. He turned his his, He turned His face away. So he saw what was going on on the cross, and he separated himself from his own son when his son became sin, um, and broke that relationship when he became sin for us. So Jesus uniquely died for us. He is unique, and so we only attribute death. So it's not that God died; Jesus died. God the Father was definitely still alive, right? God the Spirit was definitely still alive, right? Now we have this challenge. Well, can God die? Well, not until he does kenosis. And if Jesus did kenosis, can God do it in other areas to a lesser degree instead of full kenosis, which is emptying yourself, Jesus Christ did the incredible, most most extraordinary act of humility, and he brought every attribute of God under complete surrender and control to the point that he was empty of those attributes. Wow. So how did Jesus perform miracles? Same way you do. The same way a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ would. By the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why we have no miracle working. I know the little story about baby Jesus with this dove and cried and brought it back to life. Um, not in the Bible, not real, um, and not theologically possible. Because that would deny Ephesians or Philippians 2 that says he emptied himself. And so the question is, can, what does it take for Jesus to empty himself? That means he has to be able to have full, complete control over everything that describes him so that he can literally become man, 100%. So this is the humility to the nth degree. So when you see the word humble himself, that he emptied himself, this is the exercise of that attribute of God to infinity. And I mean, it's just incredible how far that went. That he took every attribute of God and said, I'm giving them all up. Now, was that permanent? That's a trick question. Was that permanent? Some of it was. I already talked about one of those, is is Jesus omnipresent? Well, no, he is permanently now man. From this point forward, he is man. But has he been exalted? Well, that's what Philippians 2 says. Having done this sacrificial act, God has highly exalted him, given the name which is above every name. And so um, God, the Father, exalted, we find that recorded for us in Revelation chapter five, what that looked like in heaven at his arrival in heaven after the ascension. And so, but even in his exalted state, which is more about authority, he still is man. He didn't cease to be man when he, when he was ascended to heaven. He is still human. And that was a permanent thing that happened. And so, um, are his other attributes restored? Certainly. We see a lot of other attributes restored. But in terms of um, his omnipresence, he, he surrendered that permanently for you. He's not um, physically here. He's in heaven, and he's going to come again, and receive us unto our, uh, receive us unto himself. That where he is, we shall be also. That's all spatial terms. So we have to distinguish Jesus now. But the question is, how did he get that way? Well, he has to have an attribute that is possessed by all of deity, by all of the one. <laughs> This is really hard language, isn't it? To enable him to do these. If holiness defines God, how could Jesus become sin? How could he walk among sinners? How? How could he be raised by sinners? How could he party with sinners? that's what he was accused of right if holiness defines God then Jesus Christ can't be God because he became sin if sovereignty defines God then Jesus can't be God because he very obviously wasn't in control of everything because he begged the Father if there was a way he could avoid death on the cross in Gethsemane. And it's very evident when he walks up to Jerusalem that he cries out, what? Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I have wanted to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. What happened in Nazareth? Yeah, they were gonna kill him, he, he avoided that, but what didn't happen in Nazareth? not hardly any miracles because they didn't believe. He was limited in those ways. And so um, if these attributes define God, then Jesus can't be God. And I haven't really addressed that in the chapter at all. That's, that's just out there. I just can't fit it all in. It would go on and on and on forever. Okay? Um, but this is the struggle there has to be some mechanism, some quality of God, that would allow this passage to happen for Jesus to come become man one hundred percent. And that quality has to be the self-sovereignty that He is in control of every thing about Himself. So He is in perfect control. Or perfect, his will has perfect exercise over everything that we understand God to be. So he has his personal will can um, bring any attribute of God into subjection. From our appearance, it looks like he's weakened by this, but that's. Not the case. So when God says, I'm going to empty myself, the, the second person of the Godhead says, I will, I'm going to exercise humility to an extraordinary level. I'm going to put it into practice and bring all these infinitudes, and I'm going to empty myself of them. He didn't do that after he became a man. He did that to become a man. So he emptied himself because he was equal with God, it says. And we're not stealing anything from one another. Um, What's yours is mine, what's mine is yours. But I'm going to surrender it all. So God, Jesus, God the Son, surrenders it all. Does that mean he ceases to be God? No, in fact, that very act is... An exercise of humility that transcends how the Father or the Spirit has ever exercised humility. It is the highest expression of that attribute in all of what is God. Now, once we understand that, and and by the way, now every theologian agrees with me on that. In fact, a lot of them try to get around this passage by saying, he didn't really empty himself of anything. That they make this statement appearance only and not reality. That somehow he just surrendered, he emptied himself of the access to it, not of the actual attributes. Or that he, that's probably the best that I've heard. Um, That he emptied himself of the authority associated with it, um, but not really of any of the attributes. And it doesn't make sense, it doesn't fit the passage, And it doesn't fit what we know about Jesus. And the question, could he be tempted, which is where we wanted to go tonight, um, addresses that. Do you believe that Jesus Christ was fully man to such a degree that he could actually do something contrary to the Father? That he could be tempted? That he could sin? That he could exercise his will contrary to the Father's will? That's what sin is. When we exercise our will contrary to God's will. Okay, if God says do this and we do the opposite, if God says don't do this and we do the opposite, we are sinning. We are exercising our will against His. To become a follower of Jesus Christ is to surrender our will to His and invite Him in. And so, could Jesus do that? And it's really a challenge of saying how human was Jesus? how much of his deity was put aside by this word emptied. And I'm pretty sure I know what the word empty means. It doesn't mean half full. It doesn't mean full, but it looks empty. That's essentially where most theologians end up. Because they want to protect the triune God from all the ramifications of having Jesus No longer possess these, which is really error because he's not, it's not that he no longer possesses them, he actually possesses them sufficiently to empty himself of them. That is the highest level of self-possession, is to give it up. And that surrender isn't just to become a man, that surrender is even to the point of death. How can God die? Only by surrendering, by giving up, and, and by, and that means he has to self possess those attributes to such a degree that he can not just make it look like he doesn't have them, but literally suspend them all. And in this sense, this is the one time that humility reigned above all the other attributes of God. It has a place like all the other attributes, but on this occasion, to to enable your salvation, his humility, his self-possession, self-sovereignty, had to be exerted to such a degree that he literally was fully man. He still had claim to deity, but he had diminished his access to any of his divinity 100%. Now, will we see evidences of his divinity in his life? What did he tell them? You've seen my works, right? But we know that those works were the result of the power of the Holy Spirit in him. But he says, this is, it wasn't the works themselves. It was the fact that the works were the fulfillment of prophecy. that it says, when you see the person who does this, know that this is that person that is the Messiah, right? And so the works, you should be following for the works, he says in John, but you should also be following me because I'm teaching you the truth. And he keeps challenging the disciples. Who does everyone say I am? Who do you think I am? And what's his thing? I am the Father, but there's nothing when you look at me that looks like God. And this is the struggle that all the disciples had, and that's why Andrew says, "Well, just show us the Father, and we'll be happy." (laughs) You, I am the Father. So he still had perfect mastery over all of his attributes, but that perfect mastery was exercised to such a degree that he was 100% man, and 100% dependent upon the Holy Spirit, and 100% um, distinguishable from the Father and the Spirit, and that is overwhelming to our intellect. It just is, it's something we have to accept by faith, Just like the disciples back in that day. How can this be? And we're going to explore that in this question next week, I guess, instead of this week. I'm okay with going slow, because I'd rather answer your questions and develop this first half. I never know how long that will go. And if one week we only do that, I'm okay with that too, answering questions and discussions. Okay? So we're going to press into the question, could Jesus have sinned uh, next week more thoroughly? I would have done that right now, but we spent that time early, and I'm okay with that. That's my design. All right, so I'm hope you doing some marking on the paper. Uh, any of your thoughts, ideas, questions, um, you can turn them into me whenever you're ready. If you want to wait till I'm done on an area, um, would probably be best. Um, but uh, you know, hold them all to the end. That's okay. Um, uh, you don't want to turn into me at all. That's fine too. <laughs> Uh, it's really up to you. Okay, let's pray. Lord God, we would thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for your word and for the marvel of Jesus Christ and what he has shown us in his actions by coming as a child, by dying on the cross, by being buried and rising again, what he has shown us about you and who you are and what you are like. And Lord, that you have described directly that you are willing to humble yourself for us. Not that we are deserving of it and there's nothing inherently in us that demands that of you. You simply chose to exercise your humility to such a degree that you could die for us and become sin for us. Lord, we can just scratch the surface of really appreciating what that entailed for you. So, Lord, we want to be a thankful people. And we want to bring glory to your name as we contemplate and meditate upon what it took for you to come and take away our sin as the perfect Lamb of God in Christ Jesus' name. We do pray, Amen. If you ever feel that I'm diminishing God or Jesus or Spirit anywhere along this, please wave at me. Please say I, I am concerned. Please tell me that um, I don't. I, I don't want to diminish Him. I'm hopefully exalting, glorifying him. That's our goal.